BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination, so pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation. been watching this case out of Moscow, Idaho, home of Idaho State, where four students were stabbed uh, and murdered, We uh, maybe even in their sleep, uh, back in November. We didn't know a whole lot about what was going on with the case, but the police and the FBI were on it, and they were making breakthroughs along the way. Joining us to tell us about those breakthroughs and how they did it is our ABC News correspondent, Alex Stone. Alex, always good to talk to you, my friend, and Happy New Year. What's uh, what's the latest here out of this this case that went from Idaho to Pennsylvania? Yeah, hey, Chris. Uh, Happy New Year to you as well. And uh, you remember for so many weeks now, and we've talked about it with John and Ken, and uh, yeah, it was what is going on, that it didn't seem like police really were going anywhere in this. And uh, family members of the victims, uh, they were worried that it was going cold. And by many accounts, it was uh, somewhat uh, that they, they didn't have a lot of leads. Uh, but they got a DNA match, and they were able to work that. And in the last week, all of this broke open, and, and they were able to, to make the arrest uh, on Friday. And what we know, and a, a couple of things that we've been learning today, so not only was it DNA, but they used uh, public genealogy databases to find him. So this is uh, one of those where it seems at the moment, according to law enforcement sources, that uh, that they had a piece of DNA that maybe in a week, two weeks ago, they got a hit back on uh, from the, the lab, but they didn't know who it belonged to. The, the, there was somebody unknown there. And they went to those public genealogy databases that, that we know more and more about that investigators have been using and either found Brian Koberger, the 28-year-old accused killer now, or a family member. And then they worked it from the family member. They knew somebody was related and then said, well, this somebody lives very nearby uh, and then worked it from there. And this somebody has a white Elantra that they had been looking for for many weeks. uh, And then they were able to make the arrest. And the police chief uh, in Moscow, Idaho, telling our team uh, this 
right now saying uh, this is their only guy. They, they think he acted alone, uh, mm-hmm. that, that he is their only killer, and they believe they have the right person saying. We believe we have our guy, the one that committed these murders. So uh, we know that the FBI, we learned today as well, surveilled the Koberger family home for four days last week uh, before they mo- moved in and made the arrest uh, on Friday. And uh, they had been watching him. Yeah, did he go anywhere? Did he try to hide anything? Um, and the white Elantra was parked out front, the chief telling us during that time when he knew an arrest was coming but had to act like nothing was going on during that time. He said, you know, it's uh, stressful. Um, you know that uh, this individual is out there somewhere. We knew that there was going to be an arrest made in Pennsylvania. That's still even though we're here, it's stressful here. Yeah, he says, I can't believe that they got there. Um, so, Chris, you know, now we're hearing a lot about this guy, that uh, criminology uh, was what he was going for in his Ph.D. Um, friends going back to high school say he had been super into crime and the mind of a killer and serial killers and all that kind of stuff. Was that the, the motive in this? Police don't seem to know yet. Um, they say just based on the, the circumstances that they still believe it was targeted, but did he target the victims because you know, he was interested in somebody? Was it that they were targeted based on uh, you know, blonde-haired women? They don't know. Uh, was this something that was personal, or was it more the mind of a serial killer and criminology that, that he was going through? Uh, they don't know. Yeah, those are the questions, I suppose, uh, Alex Stoner, ABC News correspondent, that that we're looking for answers uh, to because it seemed, at least early on in the investigation, the police thought that uh, the the killer knew these people uh, and was targeting somebody. They said it was a targeted attack. So, uh, you know, what what is the relationship is going to be tough? Can we let's talk about that white Elantra? Uh, because we did hear a bit about that white Elantra for a while. Was it? A, it was a gas station clerk, is my understanding, that was that was uh, reviewing some uh, security cam footage. Uh, just bored and decided to review security cam footage and brought that to the attention of the police. Yeah, many weeks ago, um, they they had already they were on the case of that they were looking for potentially a white Elantra in the area, um, okay. and then they got for whatever reason a little bit more firm on that they wanted to track down whoever was in there because they thought that they had some information, not saying it was a killer, but that they, they knew something. Um, and then that gas station about a mile away from the crime scene about mm, two, three weeks ago saw the a white Elantra that they thought was an Elantra um, driving by on the street. But again, it was all very circumstantial, very general of it was in the area, you know, maybe it had been a newspaper delivery person, uh, you know, driving by could have been an Uber. Police, though, they had something to make them believe that there was more to it than that. That is the vehicle that they found in Pennsylvania. That is a vehicle we now know that that, uh, Koberger and his father uh, drove cross-country and drove to Pennsylvania in mid-December on a pre-planned road trip to go home for a Christmas break that – his dad apparently had no idea that his son was allegedly uh, involved yeah. in this. And here is uh, the, the public defender, Kohlberger's public defender, telling us this today. Driving cross country took them approximately two and a half days. And Mr. Kohlberger indicated that Brian was acting normal and not out of character on the drive back. Yeah, acting uh, totally normal during it. And we found out, uh, confirmed through him uh, about five minutes ago, that. 
they were pulled over twice in Indiana, uh, once for tailgating and once for speeding. Uh, they, they were pulled over about an hour apart from two different state troopers, and at that time he was not a suspect. On December 13th, they, uh, they did not yet know that they had uh, somebody and uh, they had not tracked him down. Those troopers pulled him over, had no idea that this guy was suspected of killing four college students. They, uh, they warned him, they ticketed him, and then, and then they went on. Yeah, uh, nobody likes getting pulled over twice in one day. That's a, a bit bizarre, especially when we find out that it may be somebody who's involved in these murders after the fact, obviously. Yeah, Alex but Stone it was our... uh, totally just by chance. I mean, can you yeah. imagine, you would assume, I mean, I don't know the, the mindset of Koberger, but you would imagine that you'd be sweating that out. Maybe he wasn't, but so. you'd be thinking yeah. they're, they're on me, but, uh, but they apparently were not. So Alex Stone is our ABC News correspondent. Uh, when we find out the FBI had been keeping tabs on him for about four days, as you were, as you mentioned, Alex, do we know if the FBI was uh, trying to collect any trash or other evidence that might have DNA? I'm thinking back to the that Golden State Killer case. That was really the first one I know of where they they were able to use uh, familial DNA uh, to crack the case open. And and they, as I recall, I think they waited around for him to to leave a Starbucks cup or something behind. Do we know if the FBI had collected any other evidence like that? You know, it wouldn't be surprising. We don't know the details of the the surveillance that they did, the the detail that they were doing on them. They probably did if they were able to. But um, as it was described to us that they were watching him, yeah, they wanted to see, did he try to hide that Elantra? Did he go out and do anything? They want to know more about this guy, and police admit they don't know much about him. They're they're looking into his criminology study group um, back at the the University of Washington, just over the border from Idaho, where he's a Ph.D. student. Um, Has he done anything else? Does he have a history of anything else? You know, is this the the latest in in other crimes that that he had committed? Um, Friends, you know, again, they say he'd been really into this stuff. Uh, where he had been a TA, students say he was a really hard grader, would not make eye contact with them very much, but had loosened up in recent weeks since the murders and become much looser in, in class and an easier grader. So whatever all that means. Um, and then you're hearing yeah, from you know, all, the, yeah, all the, the friends who, I mean, like this woman, she's known him for a long time. It was just a shock. Because there's 7 billion people in this world, and it just happened to be him. He was always nice to me. Um, maybe not to other people. Other people say he had been aggressive toward them. Um, Jack Bayless has known him forever. They grew up in Pennsylvania together. He's always you know, been kind of curious as to how the human mind works, I guess, and especially as it relates to, uh, to, to crimes, to criminals. But he says he was uh, overall a nice guy. He's perfectly friendly, nice to be around, um, talk, you know. A very intelligent person. So they're trying to piece all of it uh, together and uh, who, why, how. They still don't have the murder weapon. Uh, we don't know of a motive. Now, he's going to be in court uh, tomorrow afternoon in Pennsylvania. His attorney says he is not going to fight extradition, so he'll go right back to Idaho. Once he is in court in Idaho under state law, they will unseal all of the, the court documents describing what police know, the, the probable cause to make the arrest something that, that we don't typically see in California, but in some states we do, Arizona we do, Idaho yeah. we do, then that unseals everything. And we'll know a lot more about exactly how they, what led them to the white Elantra and to him and uh, what they think he was doing and maybe motive, all of that. So maybe as early as tomorrow, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday, 
we should know a lot more. Yeah, I'm, the only thing that that uh, that I get hung up on here is the people saying, "Well, he was always interested in serial killers," and I thought, "Well." The biggest streaming show on Netflix last year was The Dahmer Show, and Investigation Discovery makes a, a whole lot of money talking about true crime. So there's an awful lot of people that are interested in true crime. Um, but then where's, where's that line, right? From a passing interest to, I guess, you know, maybe this guy was studying how to get away with it. Uh, and that, I suppose, yeah, is kind I mean, of you know, what, part, right? was it the, you know, Dexter kind of stuff going right. on? And it was it, you know, it, was he just kind of interested you know the the dateline effect um or a true crime podcast that sort of thing or was it where he was enamored by it and wanted to carry out something we we don't know and then it would seem police uh, don't know either but uh, friends one after another saying that even going back to not just college but high school as well that, that he was really really into it all right, Alex Stone is our ABC News correspondent. Alex, thank you so much for studying this uh, this case and, uh, and updating us. Always a pleasure talking to you. Happy New Year, my friend. You too. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Pal. All right, buddy. Uh, you know, Alex was talking about this technique that we saw uh, that they use this uh, uh, this uh, genealogical or forensic DNA uh, that they were using. A lot of people don't really understand how this works. I want to dive into this in just a few moments and also tell you how some companies are starting to make Boku bucks on it. That's next. Chris Merrill in for John and Ken, KFI AM640. We're live everywhere on your iHeartRadio app. Just talked with uh, Alex Stone, our ABC News correspondent, about the students, the Idaho State University students that were slain uh, back in early November. The arrest of the suspect, Brian Koberger, uh, they think that might be the guy, and how they came to that arrest seems to be reliant on some evidence regarding this, uh, this uh, white... Hyundai Elantra that they think he drove across the country uh, that may have been in the area that was they were saying, hey, you know, keep your eyes peeled for for this white Elantra. Maybe it has something to do with it. Uh, We're not sure. But then we we find out that it was forensic DNA, uh, specifically forensic genealogical DNA that may have brought them to uh, this suspect. just a little bit on this. Uh, I want to give you the, the report first. On News Nation, News Nation's been covering this like like mad. Uh, Chris Cuomo was talking with an expert about um, uh, family DNA. But as I'm listening to this interview, I don't think Chris Cuomo really understands it. Go ahead and play this guy, the Idaho uh, suspect DNA. How do they find your DNA if you are not in the system through this ancestral DNA thing? How does that work? What needs to be available to find me through these other people? That's a great question. And so it's very rare that we will find a close family member, and certainly not the suspect, in our genetic genealogy databases. So what we're looking for are people who share what we consider significant amounts of DNA, but it can be less than 1% of their DNA. If you share only 1% of your DNA, then you're likely third cousins with someone, which means you share your great great grandparents. And so we get a whole list of people that share segments of DNA with this unknown person we're trying to identify, and we can reverse engineer their family tree by who they're related to. So the only reason two people would share these significant stretches of DNA across their genome is if they have a common ancestor in their family tree. They have to have inherited that DNA from someone back in that tree. And so hopefully you'll get matches to different 
lines, their mother's side, their father's side. In some cases, you get all four grandparents' lines. And there's we all have unique family trees, except for our full siblings. And so if you're able to put enough of those ancestors back in that tree and piece it together, that's gonna narrow it down to just one immediate family. Sometimes you can't get quite that far, so you might yeah. have to look at first cousins if you can only get to grandparents. But that's how we do it. We're not using close relatives in most of these cases. It's usually people who won't even know the suspect. Okay, understood. You still need a name though. You need somewhere to start. So they have to have well, something that right. help them uh, develop an understanding. Right, right. so we wouldn't right. have so his that name. that is our last question, which is? All right, so Chris Cuomo gets confused. He says, right, but you have to have a name. Right. You have to have a name. Chris Cuomo did not understand when when she's trying to explain how this works. And he says, gotcha, gotcha. I get it. I get it. But you have to have a name. Chris Cuomo is still thinking in the old fashioned uh, uh, like fingerprint stuff. So if you're on a crime scene and you collect a fingerprint, you have to have that fingerprint in a database somewhere to match the fingerprint to somebody. Cuomo seems to believe that's how this works. It doesn't. The way the genealogy works, and I, I, I took for granted that people understood this, but when you've got somebody like, like Cuomo who, I mean, the guy's no dummy. He's been around. He's been following stories for decades. The way this works, and she, she put it, the expert there put it this way, is that you may only have a connection with, say, a third cousin. So you're only sharing 1% of DNA. If you have a DNA sample at a crime scene and you run that through your database and you find uh, a sample in your database that has a 50% match, you know that you're dealing with a parent or a child of that of that suspect. If it's, say, a quarter percent, a 25% match, you're probably dealing with a, with a grandparent. Now, these numbers can fluctuate, and without getting into the, the, the various strains and the chromosomes and the centimorgans that they use to identify all of these things, just basically, if you think about it, you have 50% of your father's DNA, 50% of your mother's DNA. All right, and then you would have twenty-five percent of your uh, uh, of each grandparent's DNA that then gets passed down and passed down. The higher up you get, and you probably remember this from um, from when you're younger, and somebody will say, "Well, I'm a quarter, uh, I'm a quarter Irish," or somebody will say, uh, "I have I have five percent Cherokee in me," or something like that, right? Or I'm one sixteenth Cherokee. They'll say. That's kind of how this works. But when you start getting out to the cousins, then you go, well, my second cousin has got a 15% match. My third cousin might only have a 1% match, meaning we have shared great-grandparents. So what they do is they go, okay, we found our database, which might be what they call GEDmatch or Family Tree or one of these others. Not Ancestry or MyHeritage. Those, they don't share with the police, but some of these others do. For a cost, every time police want to run one of these tests, it's about 700 bucks, Just for the police. You might not have to pay that if you're just doing a family tree match, right? Like you like you, you did your little sample and then you're going to go check it out online. Yeah, it doesn't cost you that much. It costs the police about 700 bucks every time they want to do this. So what they do is they go, okay, well, we ran it through and here's what we had for a database match of our 60 million uh, uh, people that are in the database. We were able to find this one that looks like it might be a third cousin. We found this one that might be a second cousin. And we found this one that might be an uncle. So what they do then is triangulate. All right, who out there would have this person as their third cousin, this person as their second cousin, and that person as their uncle? So by doing that, they're able to then narrow it down to 
a pair of siblings, or if it's an only child, you get it, right? Or maybe it's somebody over, you know, this cousin happens to fit that same formula. But they're able to narrow it down so tightly based on the information they have. Chris Cuomo seems to think that they have to have somebody in a in a database that they go looking for to see if it matches. That's not how it works. Imagine if you had a fingerprint from a crime scene, and you ran that through a database, and the database were able to tell you, well, this fingerprint is not a match for anybody, but it's a 10% match for this person, and it's a 4% match for this person, and then you're able to piece that together, you might find somebody else who potentially could have that fingerprint. And then you go find that person and get their fingerprints and see if it's a match. This is where the the genealogical DNA, the forensic genealogical DNA, is revolutionary. It's a breakthrough. But it's also early on, which means you're going to have a lot of defense attorneys that are looking for ways to poke holes in the science. So far, they haven't been very successful in poking holes because science doesn't care what they believe. All right. Speaking of law, going to be some new ones here in 23. Are you prepared? That's next. Chris Maryland for John and Ken, KFI AM 640. We're live everywhere on your iHeartRadio app. Somebody sent me a message about the, the DNA, the genealogical DNA, and how it could be screwed up. And they're right. It can be screwed up. Uh, and I appreciate that. We were we were talking about the genealogical DNA uh, that has been used by forensic detectives in the case of the, the stabbing in Idaho. We first saw this used, I believe it was the first time that it was used, uh, when they caught the Golden State Killer. Remember that? And they basically narrowed it down to two people. And then they grabbed DNA from those two people. One guy lived in Seattle, and then one guy lived... Uh, actually, the, the killer, I believe, was in Seattle. This was the, the, the guy that had done stabbings and rapes and murders back in the 70s and 80s, uh, mostly in Sacramento, but I think he had a couple down here, too. Um, they were able to basically use some of that old DNA, run it through a genealogical database, find some ancillary matches, and narrow it down, basically triangulate who that might be. Uh and I made mention that defense attorneys are, are going to question the science, and, and somebody asked, what, you know, what questions are there? It seems pretty obvious. It's DNA. DNA doesn't lie. You're right, and I appreciate the, the, the message. Uh, there are some hang-ups on this, and one of the hang-ups that genealogists are facing, not just forensic genealogists, but there are a lot of questions, and you may have heard stories of people that are finding out things about their family that they otherwise didn't know. And sometimes the DNA is coming back, and sometimes it's showing that uh, grandpa isn't actually grandpa. Like, the person you knew as grandpa isn't actually grandpa. And then we find out, well, grandma may have had an affair at some point. This sort of thing is coming out, right? So there are some of those um, uh, challenges. So suppose you start matching people in this DNA sequence but you don't have a direct match. So in the case of our, our our suspect in the Idaho killings, let's suppose that they find like a second cousin and they find a, 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 an aunt and they find a, a first cousin somewhere. And they start, they start saying, well, this first cousin uh, and this aunt, all right, well, those are close. Well, they're together. So uh, they're related to uh, this guy and this guy, him and his wife, they have a child. And so that might be our killer. Unless, of course, this guy fathered a child outside of wedlock, right? And that doesn't necessarily show up on, doesn't show up where you might think, you know, where... Uh Uh-oh, he had a child out of wedlock, 
the girlfriend never listed the father on the birth certificate or something of that nature, right? Now, all of a sudden, you, you run into, into some dead ends. So that's some of the challenges. The other challenge that you can run into is what they call endogamy. That's uh, incest. So that'll throw your stats off, too. That'll mess everything up. Like, hmm, that's strange. We've got a connection here, and this should be this should be the grandparent, but it also matches the same as the parent. How does that happen? Well, you get it happens. And actually, what genealogists are finding is uh, two things. First, it happens more often than people uh, ever imagined. Uh, and second, a lot in the South. You know, uh, just uh, but not all in the South. Believe it or not, remote and cold climates uh, are places where they have a lot of that going on, especially historically, especially when you were still in horse and buggy times. You might have a village, and uh, there might be, you know, six or ten families living in this small village. Uh, say the uh, the pickings are a little slim. Might not be your cousin, or excuse me, might not be your sister, but it might be a cousin that you end up with. Happened a lot. Happens a lot. So, yeah, those are some of the challenges that investigators are facing right now, as are all genealogists who are studying DNA and and trying to uh, figure out how to use that as they create family trees. But, you know, the same challenges genealogists are having can also be a challenge for those uh, investigators. New laws uh, happening starting now, and there are a few that really caught my eye. Uh, One of those... And we debated this a little bit. I was in for Tim Conway Jr. last week. We debated this a little bit on the air. Uh, and that is the uh, the equality in pricing. Um, Cal Matters reports this. Shoppers may have noticed that shampoos and other personal care products marketed to women sometimes cost more than very similar versions for men. Uh, I believe this to be true. And I also buy uh, women's shampoo and conditioner. And I'm not ashamed. Uh, I don't know if it works any better, but I do know that I believe it works better. How does that look? If there's something that it's kind of this running gag about men's soap, which is like a five in one soap. It's like it's a shampoo, a conditioner, a body wash and a toothpaste all in one. Uh, It's kind of a running gag. Just how many things they can throw into that, you know, that bottle. But there is this piece of me that goes is that really all that effective or is that just going to dry my hair out? So then I go and I buy women's stuff. Or uh, I figure if my wife is going to use my razor, I can use her shampoo and conditioner. Then I find out that as much as I thought my razors were incredibly expensive, her shampoo and conditioner is about 10 times more than my razors are. So uh, I do it discreetly. The new law in California says that stores are going to be banned from charging a different price based on gender. So what does that mean? Well, they call it the pink tax. So let's suppose that you have a, a, a Pantene men's shampoo. I don't even know if there was a Pantene men's shampoo. Uh, so I'm, it's just my, my wild example here. Uh, but then you have a Pantene women's shampoo. Well, if the women's shampoo is priced higher than the men's shampoo, that would be a, a pink tax. So you can't do that anymore. So the goal of the law is to lower the prices of the women's products so that they're not more expensive than the men's products. In the end, I think what's going to happen is the manufacturers are simply going to raise the price of the men's products so that they match the women's products. I don't think anybody's going to spend less money. They're going to raise the price of the men's products and then say, well, inflation. Yeah, the prices had to come. You know, inflation. That's how I see this playing out. Yeah, you got rid of the pink tax. 
now just everybody pays it. Uh, not only that, a few other things too, uh, including the this uh, this law that allows you to uh, sue anybody that makes or sells illegal ghost guns or assault-style weapons. This is the law that California did almost as a, a performative law in response to Texas abortion law. California was trying to show how dumb the Texas abortion law, that SB8 was. That was the one that basically allowed anybody to sue anybody for an abortion. So California said, well, this is ridiculous. What if we were to do it with guns? And so then they did. Well, that's going into effect now with some caveats. Uh, it's not quite as unconstitutionally as uh, the Texas law, but still close. Uh, also, you're not supposed to, in California now, you're not supposed to spread misinformation. And the state medical board is supposed to be able to punish physicians easier who deliberately spread misinformation. Some doctors are suing the, to stop that law, calling it a violation of their free speech rights. This came to light, of course, during the era of COVID. And uh, so many doctors that decided they were going to be you know, they have alternate viewpoints or alternate facts. Just a few of these uh, laws that we're going to have to start facing uh, as we ring in the new year. Well, it wouldn't be a new year if we didn't have the big Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl going on right now. But the Rose Bowl will never be the same again. You're going to find out why in just a sec. Chris Merrill in for John and Ken. KFI AM640 live everywhere in your iHeartRadio app. Chris Merrill in for the boys. He'll be back tomorrow. Mark, you were talking about the, the uh, parade. And did you say celebrities had to get out and walk? Yeah, there apparently one of the uh, vintage cars broke down and Danny Trejo and the mayor had to get out and walk. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of funny, especially because we've heard of them. I mean, how many times, you know, oftentimes there's people in the parade and you're like, I don't know who that is. But uh, no, I know the mayor and, and Danny Trejo. That's great. <laughs> Just imagine People like you and me standing by the side of the road and be like, I think Machete is walking down the street. There he is. Well, it would have been a lot funnier if it had been a float, a big float that uh, went haywire. Yes. Because who doesn't love Animal House? Yes, totally. (laughs) 100%. So what do they do with the old vehicle? Because if it stops, nobody can get around it. The marching band isn't going to walk over it, right? So they got to, like... Do they have to just call people in from the crowd to help push it off? Nah, just set it on fire. Oh, no, no. This is in Pasadena, Mark. You can't get away with it there. Oh, I, I could be wrong. I was just guessing. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Other parts sorry. of the, Other parts, you can uh, you can just set it on fire and nobody would notice the difference. But no, Pasadena, they would notice that. That would happen. I was fascinated. The OC Register ran a, a story. And, you know, why why are they running a story about the uh, the Rose Parade? Um I, don't, I really don't know why, but they did, and I'm glad they did, because they talked about Peggy O'Leary. You may not know who Peggy O'Leary is, but Peggy O'Leary is this uh, 80-year-old woman who cares very deeply about her community and keeping it clean. She is the queen of parade pooper scoopers. She is the longest-serving volunteer pooper scooper. She said, I started on a whim. One year, I watched the parade from the grandstands and observed a small contingent of volunteers picking up after the horses, and it looked like fun. Now, this is what makes her special. She sees people picking up scat and goes, that looks like fun. So, indeed, she then volunteered. She is not a member of the Tournament of Roses. Uh, she signed up. She's, uh, excuse me, not a member of the Tournament of Roses White Suit Brigade, but she still wears, like, a, a white 
uh, jumpsuit of some sort. She signed up to volunteer in 1990 and hasn't missed a parade since. She just cleans up the poop. At some point, don't you think you'd want a promotion? Nope, not Peggy. She shows up at the parade route at 6 a.m., joins her two-person team, one wielding a push broom and the other with a snow shovel. The station, uh, excuse me, their station is the famed TV corner on Orange Grove Boulevard, starting at Green Street and on Colorado Boulevard until the Elks Lodge. Uh, And then uh, others, of course, follow the horses throughout the rest of the parade route. And uh, she kind of, she made herself a little, little crown of uh, flowers, a little little floral crown there. And then she's got uh, matching uh, gloves, and she says we just try to stay out of the way of horses, the floats, and the bands, and then have fun. I don't know how much fun you have picking up poop, but I'm so glad somebody is uh, is able to find some enjoyment there. Uh, and I got to tell you, she's 80. She looks like a very spry 80-year-old. This lady, uh, quite frankly, looks awesome. Uh, she taught at Belvedere Junior High in East Los Angeles and South, Panade- uh, South Pasadena Junior High, easy for me to say. Uh, then she got her master's degree and retired from the University of San Francisco as a senior associate director of the sports management master's program. Uh, her husband is a fellow longtime South Pasadena, Pasadena, Pasadena. Her son and her two granddaughters say they get a kick out of all the New Year's activities, the pooper scooping included. I love it. Take that, Beach Boys. There's your little old lady from Pasadena. She's out there cleaning up horse crap. That's perfect. I kind of want to adopt her to be my uh, my grandmother because, uh, you know, I lost my grandmother a few years ago and I need somebody cool and fun and she would be uh, a perfect fit for that. The Rose Bowl game is going on, incidentally. It's Penn State, Utah. It's tied at the half, uh, 14-14. Have you seen the uh, crowd shots? No, no. I, I just oh. have it up. I, I don't have the full game up here. I've just got the, uh, like, the score. So it's, what are the crowd shots? Is it full? Is it empty? What's, what's going on? Well, the Rose Bowl is packed to the brim, but it is sure, 75% Utah fans, 25% Penn State fans. There's just a spattering really? of white. It is, wow. It, so, the, yeah, it is Penn State's wearing red. they're all white. Yeah, it's a sea of red. Wow. That's impressive. Good for Utah. Utah doesn't make it to the Rose Bowl very often, do they? I think they've only had just a couple of appearances. No. Uh, well, yeah, because they, they haven't always been... Yeah, in the conference. So the Pac, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten have always been the teams that have played in the Rose Bowl. That has changed a few times in recent years. And uh, Eric, feel free to correct me on this, but I believe that's changed a few times in recent years uh, because of the playoffs. Yeah, because of the, the college way that football they sort playoff, of structured yeah. that. Yeah, just the way so that if, it's been structured. If the if the if the Rose Bowl is one of the playoff bowls, which it was not this year. Correct. If it's one of the playoff bowls, then uh, it may be whoever is that that one and four, two and three seed. Right. It wouldn't be um, the traditional Big Ten, Pac-12 matchup. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, but now, oh, by the way, the first uh, first Rose Bowl, do you know who played in the first Rose Bowl? Michigan? That was uh, my University of Michigan Wolverines. I wonder why no, you brought No, I it didn't up. go to the University of Michigan. No, my grandmother went there back in 1949 for one semester. That's the closest I ever got. Uh, but uh, they beat the hell out of Stanford really bad. In 1902, they beat the, the snot out of Stanford. Uh, something ridiculous, like 51 to 10 or something like that. I don't oh, yeah, here it is. Score 49 nothing. Yeah, 49 nothing. 
Yeah. Stanford quit in the third quarter. They just said, that's it, we're out. So that's a fun fact. The first game, first Rose Bowl, uh, one of the teams quit because they were getting slobber knocked. So uh, then it went on hiatus for another, I don't know, 10 or 12 years or something, and then they came back. But now, I guess, uh, they're changing it. So it's no longer going to be Big Ten versus Pac-12. They're calling it the end of an era. This is the last showdown between the traditional Big Ten and Pac-12. And it used to be you had to be the conference champions, but then as they start bringing in these different um, New Year's Day Bowls, especially the college football playoffs, uh, oftentimes you'll get the the Big Ten or the Pac-12 conference champion that will be playing in a different bowl game rather than the Rose Bowl as part of the college football playoffs. And with the college football playoffs expanding, it looks like this is going to be it as far as the Big 12 Pac-10 showdown. So don't expect to see those two teams um, getting deferential treatment for the Rose Bowl in the future. So there you go. All right, we'll give you an update on the deputy that was shot in Riverside County last week uh, as the sheriff has sort of stirred up up a hornet's nest. And uh, frankly, I think it needed to be stirred. We'll talk about that here in just a sec. Chris Merrill in for John and Ken, KFI AM 640. We're live everywhere on your iHeartRadio app. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination, so pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation.